The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. My name is Paul Poteet. I'm an elder here at Bethlehem Baptist Church. Uh, I've been here since 2003 when I moved here with Campus Outreach to minister to college students and uh, have given the last 21 years of my life to university ministry. Um, So 18 of those have been here in Minneapolis, and my wife Samantha was the women's minister downtown for three years. A lot of times I introduce myself as Sam's husband because more people are like, oh yeah, I know who you are now. Um, So, uh, but recently we stepped into a role with Campus Outreach and over the last year and a half work with eight different Campus Outreach ministries around the Midwest, helping people, uh, helping leaders and other ministers learn to engage people with the good news of Jesus Christ, to welcome those, to help train those. That's what we love doing. So I've been able to preach at Bethlehem in my time here maybe five or six times. And I think out of all of those, only one has not been about talking with people about their faith. And this morning is going to be no different. Uh, it's, it's my, I'm a one-trick pony. Um, so if you remember, at the end of Kenny's message last week, he shared a quote about our current culture. He talked about nuns, not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S, and how there's this rise that tw- over 25% of the U.S. population would not affiliate with any kind of faith system, with, with no religion. And there's another poll in Gallup where over 50% of the U.S. are not members at any kind of church or religious institution. And so those numbers are drastically up from even 10 years ago, and I think that's probably going to continue. So, I mean, just in general, uh, the, the world we find ourselves in is less and less um, of a proponent for faith and for the church and for Christ. And so I also think that just Christians today in general tend to be more hesitant about talking with people about their faith because, you know, I, I grew up thinking you don't talk about religion and politics and all the more, those things become divisive and, and polarizing, and so they can put people off. Um, when I was in college, you know, our ministry would go out and share with people about Jesus Christ. And oftentimes in South Carolina, people would say to me, oh, bless your heart. Like, you're such a, you're such a good lad. Like, it's a, good for you being out here talking to people about their faith. But now, when that happens, it's the opposite. It's, what are you doing out here? Why are you talking to me? The problem in the world right now are people like you. And so would you just stop doing what you're doing? Um, Quite simply, Christianity used to be viewed maybe as implausible, but now it's not only implausible, but people see it as immoral. And so how do we go about holding that good news out? So, you know, with that bit of good cheer, um, I want to be clear. My aim this morning is to lovingly encourage you to hold out to others the good news of Jesus Christ in the face of inevitable hardship. Let me say it again. My hope, my prayer, what I've been praying for for the last month is that you would be encouraged to hold out the good news of Jesus Christ to others, but in the face of inevitable hardship. Um, So for those of you who are online or who are here and you're not sure what you think about Jesus, I am so glad you're here. Like, don't think that this is not a message for you. Actually, I hope that you'll feel engaged, that maybe some of the things that I say you'll resonate with. 
um, that, that if you're asking questions, if you have doubts, I would love nothing more than after the service to talk to you. Uh, I issue that invitation every time that I've preached on things like this. And every time I usually have like one person who will come and talk to me. Uh, and so uh, I, w- I would love to do that. And if you're here and you're a Christian, then like I said, I, I want you to feel encouraged and not ashamed, not guilty. I think oftentimes when people talk about uh, sharing your faith with others or prayer, it's really easy to feel like a second-class Christian. And that's not my goal at all. My goal is that we would feel hopeful and encouraged and uh, be excited to hold out this good news to other people. So let me pray to that end, and then we'll jump into the text. Uh, Father, thank you so much that someone at some point held out the good news of the gospel to all of us most of us in this room, most of us online, and that you were so pleased to soften our hearts and open our eyes that we would believe. God, I I just ask that you might do that today. Uh, And even more so, God, that you might do that in the lives of family members and neighbors and coworkers that this body of brothers and sisters would interact with this week and that you would do a massive work. There's nothing that I can do to change a heart. There's nothing that we can do to change a heart. There's nothing I can do to motivate people to this end. But you can. And so God, would you be pleased to do that by the power of your son, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so we, as we look at the passage, I've got a nice three-point outline. Um, one custom, two cities, three concepts. One, two, three. One custom, two cities, three concepts. So just summary, like I mentioned, Kenny talked last week about Paul and his missionary journey in Philippi. And so he goes there and he preaches and Lydia becomes a Christian and then a slave girl becomes a Christian. And then this, you know, they get beaten and thrown in jail. And then this Roman centurion becomes a Christian. And that begins this early church there in Philippi. But Kenny mentioned last week that when Paul went there, he didn't go to a synagogue because there wasn't a synagogue in Philippi. Um, However, in Thessalonica, we're told that when Paul goes there, as was his custom, he goes to the synagogue and starts reasoning with them from the scriptures. Um, So it seems to me, as I've looked at this, that his custom, wherever he went, was to first, if there was one, to go to the synagogue and to do ministry with the people who'd gathered there. I looked over the book of Acts And in chapter 13, verse 4 in Cyprus, he goes to the synagogue. In 13, 14, he goes to Antioch and there goes to the synagogue. 14, 1, Iconium. Guess where he goes? The synagogue. In 17, 17, this is next week in Athens. A lot of times people think about Athens like, yeah, there's where he's in the, the Areopagus and in the marketplace. But before he goes there, guess where he goes? You got it. Synagogue. Um, Chapter 18 in Corinth, he goes to the synagogue. Chapter 19, Ephesus. Yes, he goes to the synagogue. This was his strategy. This was his habit, his custom. And so I want to ask, do you have a custom? Do you have a strategy, a a way or a place to consistently, lovingly, prayerfully engage with other people about your faith? Maybe it's somewhere that you go frequently. You know, being on staff with a college ministry, uh, what that's meant is that I have been a perpetual college student. Um, I still live my life on semesters. I think right now, not, it's 2021, I think it's fall semester. Um, when I talk about next year, I'll talk about next semester. 
uh, holidays, I get all the student, all the college breaks. I've had them for all of my life. I know nothing more than a spring break and a fall break. It's been nice in that sense. Um, But that also meant that I would just go play frisbee or ping pong. You may not think it, but ping pong has just been a beautiful custom for me. Um, to get around people. If I were to go to a campus today, I would walk into a cafeteria or walk into a dorm and try to talk with people about their faith. But I recognize that that custom, those customs will be more challenging for all of you. It'd be weird if all of us just descended on the dorms at the University of Minnesota. Most of us are a little too old for that. So after college, there was a season where I went to a gym. I joined a gym and went there, and my desire was each time I go to try to work out with the same person. Uh, usually that was me spotting them because I, didn't, uh, I couldn't lift as much. And to ask them things about their life, about what's going on, to try to engage with them, to ask them a lot of questions, to get to know them. And then hopefully the next time that I would go, to get to know them, to talk to them, to get to meet them. Um, and eventually they would start asking me questions. And I got to talk to them. One of the guys eventually asked me, he said, hey, I know that you go to a church or something like that. I've just been thinking lately, what do you think about demons? And I was like, whoa, I I didn't expect that to be his question. But we had engaged enough, and he knew that I went to a church and uh, worked with college students that I can talk to this guy about supernatural things. And he had watched a movie, or it had had been troubling him, and so he wanted to talk about it. Currently, in all honesty, my custom is to go to Chick-fil-A. If there are employees of Chick-fil-A here, I see a few people who are excited. Uh, Thank you for your business. Um, I grew up in the South, so maybe you're like classic Southerner, and you know, what custom could you use at Chick-fil-A? They're all Christians anyway, right? No, that's not true. Um, But going there, I've got to have some really incredible conversations, and I've met some people and got to talk to them. And it's just having a habit, having a rhythm in life to be in places has provided opportunities to have good conversations. And so, real quick, quick practical. A good conversation, you start external. So, hey, how are you doing? How's it going? What's going on? What did you do this weekend? And then you move internal because maybe they say, yeah, you know, I went to this or it's been a rough week. And you say, well, tell me more about that. Like, how how did that feel? That sounds really hard. That seems like a stressful week. And you move from these external questions to more internal questions. And then over time, you can move eternal. How do you deal with that? What resources do you have for hope? In the midst of that hardship, what do you trust in? So you move from external to internal to eternal. And a good conversation works that way. And so I've tried to have those. Uh, So what could your custom be? Maybe it would be a gym, go into the Y. Maybe your neighbors, maybe the same coffee shop that you go to. My question is, do you have uh, a rhythm to try to put yourself in a position to consistently be around people who don't know Jesus? People who need to hear about the hope that we have in Christ. Um, So you can patiently and lovingly hold out that truth to them. Uh, There's a a book called Atomic Habits. A guy named James Clear wrote this book. I see people nodding their heads. It's a guy like 55,000 reviews on Amazon. Most of them are five stars. And he's trying to get people to form habits in their life. And he talks about atomic because, you know, atoms are so small. They're like the, the smallest things. And he would say the way that you start a habit is you start really small. You take a really small step as you do something. And so I would just ask you, what could be a small step you could take to build a custom? Paul had this custom of going to synagogues, of being in that place. That's what he did wherever he went. What could it be for you? Maybe it's starting to walk around your neighborhood. I know it just snowed, so walks are probably not the best habit right now. But in the spring, maybe you could do that. Maybe it's going to the same coffee shop. 
Maybe it's going to the YMCA or the, or the local gym at the same time. Like, what could it be in your life? What could be a habit that you could start to form, that a small step you could take? Um, so that's the first point, is that Paul had this one custom. So then, two cities. Um, in the passage, uh, in the first part, he goes to Thessalonica. So Thessalonica was a big deal. It was called the Mother of Macedonia. It was a capital city in the region and a province of Rome. So maybe it was more urban, more populated, more diverse. You step into a city like that. Where do you begin? Like, how do you start ministering? You have a custom, right? And he goes to the synagogue. So when he shows up, he begins talking to people. And if you look in chapter 17, it says, Paul went in and as was his custom on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and die. And then he says, just this Jesus whom I proclaim to you. So Paul reasons, he explains, he uh, opens up, he shows, he proclaims. He's doing a lot of work when he goes to the synagogue. Um, Those words, I looked them up in the Greek. He's disputing, discussing, expounding, commending, putting forth, proving, preaching, showing, He's having to do a lot. He's having to make connections for them to show them, here's what it says here. Did you look at this? Like, think about this. Um, And so that's what we're going to have to do is try to make those connections with people. Do it in a way that's gentle and reasonable. Paul says later on in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, correcting with gentleness. Paul's engaging here. And what I would encourage us is how can we be in the midst of our customs? How can we be curious with people? How can we draw them out? How can we explain? How can we engage? Because that's what he's having to do here. This is uh, a longer interaction. And I think that because in there, he's going three Sabbath days. So for three weeks, Paul is engaging to do this. It's not just one time and then they, they believe. But he's having to, and here's a specific word, persuade them. I love that word. It says that after he did this, they were persuaded to, to join him and to follow Christ. And I think that kind of persuasion is what we're going to have to do. Um, you know, there was a guy that I met with and over four years of meals and uh, haircuts and different things that I would, I would and I gave him haircuts. Um, we talked about his questions, kind of persuaded with him. One of the times that I preached here, And, you know, I said, hey, if anyone wants to talk to me after, please do. And this young woman sent me an email and said, hey, could we talk? I don't think I'm a Christian, and I'd love to talk about it. And so we met, and we talked, and then we had her over to our house. And for the course of a year or two, persuaded, reasoned, explained, tried to make connections, and to show them who Jesus is. It takes time. You've got to be dialed in. You've got to build categories. You've got to ask a lot of questions. And you've got to get them to get to the place where they're asking a lot of questions about these things. Paul, when he goes to Thessalonica, he was able to use Scripture as a starting point. And maybe that's possible with some people that you know. But I think our landscape has changed. Now, I mentioned earlier that over 25% of the one in four people that you interact with doesn't affiliate with any kind of religion. And and over 50% don't go to church. And so maybe you know someone and you can just drop down and open the Bible and reason with them and explain out of the Bible right off the bat. But I think it's going to take time because the previous generation, they had some of these beliefs. If you think about it as dots, 
when you talk to a person, they believed in the existence of God. There's a dot. They might even believe that the Bible is authoritative and true. There's a dot. They believe that Jesus was a good person and understand his teaching. There's a dot. They feel a sense of guilt or that they don't measure up to the standard they're supposed to. There's a dot. And so when you talk with them, you just kind of connect the dots, right? I mean, that's most tracks, the four spiritual laws, different things like that. It's just connecting the dots of, of beliefs and things that people hold to be true. What about when they don't have those dots? What about when they don't think there's a God? They don't think they're doing anything wrong. They don't believe the Bible. They think Christianity is oppressive. They have, maybe they're anti-dots in some way. What do you do there? They're unaware, maybe, of, the, of dots in their life. You've got to help build those dots. You've got to give them those categories. Uh, and, and that takes time. Here's an example. Right now in our culture, human rights, equality, the dignity of individuals, it is a huge deal. You see it everywhere. You see it on the news. You see it in sports. Like, that's just what's being talked about. Uh, equality, opportunity, justice. People are passionate about these things. And rightly so. We should be passionate about those things. But we know why we're passionate about those things. Because those things flow out of the heart of God. And what's incredible is that this generation is so passionate about these things. But why are they passionate about them? Why is it so important? I think they want the kingdom. They want justice. They want truth. They want dignity. But they don't want the king. They don't know the king. And we've got to help them see. You really love this you're, you're really standing up for these things. Why are you doing that? Because I think what you're standing up for are things that Christianity introduced to the world. You, you love these Christian principles, but you don't know that that's where they come from. And maybe in that kind of dialogue, maybe they would build a dot. Um, we, need to get some, we need to get in their lives and help build those dots. Help show them your beliefs come from somewhere. Um, so let me jump down to the second city. That's in Thessalonica, persuading examining, explaining, proving. The next city in verses 10 to 15 that Paul goes to is Berea. And, you know, when he goes there, it's a little bit more out of the way town, uh, smaller. Where do you start in a place like that? You go to the synagogue, right? That's his custom. He goes to the synagogue. So he goes there, but it's different. It says that he gave them the word and that they received it. And then they examined it themselves and then they believed. In Thessalonica, he had to reason, he had to explain, he had to prove, he had to proclaim, he had to show. But in Berea, he just holds it out and they believe. Two different words. There's a Greek word for persuade in, in Thessalonica, but it's the classic pisteuo in, in Berea. They just believe. Um, and, you know, princess, they examine the scriptures for themselves. You know, I grew up in South Carolina and all over the Southeast, you'll find Berean Baptist churches. There's a lot of Berean Baptist churches because churches want to be identified with the Berean church because of this right here. Because it says, if you look at the text, uh, the Jews there were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And and so people, they want to be noble like that. They want to be receptive. They want to be open. They want to be people of the Bible. And that's a beautiful thing. A commentator, F.F. F. Bruce, says, With admirable freedom from prejudice, they brought the missionaries' claims to the touchstone of holy writ. 
they heard what Paul was saying and they took it and they brought it to the Bible and they looked at it. And there's an exhortation for us here. Do we eagerly look at the scriptures like that? Are we people of God's word like that? Uh, are we reasonable with it? Or do we just take what other people say? One year we had a, a conference and Kimpton Turner, he used to be a pastor here. Now he's a pastor of a church plant that we've sent out. And uh, we wanted to highlight some of his favorite books in the bookstore. And so I met with Kimpton and we had lunch and I asked him, okay, uh, we want you know, students to read books that you've read. You're going to be speaking to them. We want you to influence them. So what book should we highlight? And he said, the Bible. And I said, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously the Bible. Of course we want to highlight the Bible. But he's like, no, the Bible. That's all I want. I don't want another book highlighted, just the Bible. Because so many people might read C.S. Lewis or Tim Keller or John Piper or whoever else. I want them to be reading the Bible. And, and they need to get it from there because he wanted them to be like the Bereans. He wanted them to not just take what someone else has said, but to go look at the Bible for themselves to learn for themselves, to understand for themselves. Will we do that? Will you do that today? I hope you do. I hope that you don't take what I'm saying for an instant just off of Paul Poteet saying it, but that you look at the Bible. You look and you see, is, is that true? Did, did, was this Paul's custom? Is this how he engaged? What does this mean? Because my words are not powerful to change anyone, but God's word is powerful, is living, is active. And that's, that's what's got to change hearts. Um, so as he, close parenthesis, as he engages and they believe, that does still happen today. You know, I, I, I want to argue with us. Um, be a Berean church. But I really want us to be a Thessalonian church. Um, but in Berea, when he goes there, people believe. And, and like I said, that, that still occurs today. I got an email recently from a friend who's ministering in New Zealand. And I, I just want to read you the email. It's about uh, a young woman that she met named Zi Ling. I met Zi Ling only last week at our pancake outreach event. We instantly connected, spoke briefly about spiritual things, and then planned to hang out again. That week when we met up, she said she had a dream that she went to church, that we read the Bible, and she came to know God. Unbelievable. So she came to church with me. We bought her a Bible, and we began reading it. She's originally from China and had never heard of Jesus and said that there the government teaches that religion isn't real. But she said she's always felt there was a God and finally gets to know him. I mean, I just had to read that story because we need to be encouraged, right? We have no idea how God's word might work. And even, I mean, they just met her and then she had a dream. I mean, I'm just waiting for the day. Lord, please let someone show up and say, Paul, I had a dream that I was supposed to meet with you to talk about Jesus. Like that, that's what we always pray for, right? And that still happens. But like I said, I just think now in our culture, in the United States, in this generation, we need a software update. We need to go to 2.0 because we're going to have to do more of the reasoning that happened in Thessalonica. And, and like I said, I want us to be a Berean church. But I don't know of any Thess like First Thessalonian churches in the Southeast. I know a lot of Berean Baptists. But the reason I want that is because later on, in Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica, he says to them, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. 
like the Thessalonian church. Paul had to go and persuade and reason and do all these things. And because that's what he did there, I believe that's what they started doing with other people. They kept persuading, reasoning, examining, holding out so that they became this exemplary church in this whole region of people who would go and talk with others about their faith. And so Bethlehem, let's be a Berean church, but please let's be a Thessalonican church as well. Let's hold out that truth to other people. It's such a beautiful thing. It's such a powerful thing. It's such a challenging, daunting thing. But can we do it? So one custom, two cities, three concepts. Uh, The first concept is that it takes a priesthood. And here's what I mean by that. You guys maybe know the the phrase, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, I'm holding out that it takes a priesthood to hold out the gospel. And I say that because... In Thessalonica, it says that some of them were persuaded, in verse 4, and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. And then on down in Berea, it says they received the word, and many of them believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. And so what we see is that people believed this, this men, women, Jews, Gentiles. Like, I love that in Thessalonica and Berea, it says... And not a few leading women. Like there was something that Luke wanted to draw our attention to. Of men and women believing, coming to Christ, being a part of the church. Think back to last week. Lydia is the first convert. Then the slave girl. And then the jailer. And, you know, I think Kenny mentioned that when the jailer believed, where did he go? He sent him to Lydia's house. Like the way that men and women partner together in ministry here is beautiful. The way that I've seen it happen in our church is beautiful. It needs to happen more. But Paul didn't just do this ministry by himself. Paul is here with Silas. Paul went earlier with Barnabas. Paul goes with Timothy. Paul is traveling around with people. So Paul didn't just show up as an individual. Oftentimes when we think of ministry, we think of personal ministry. And what I want to hold up is there was a corporate ministry here. Paul's letter to the Thessalonians where he's praising them for their witness is to the church, to all the believers there, to the priesthood of believers as they were ministering together. They went out, you know, even Jesus sent out the disciples in twos. The early church didn't do ministry as an individual. It wasn't just what you can do. It's what you can do together. And so remember back to one custom, a custom that maybe you have, like could you not just think about what are you going to do by yourself, but maybe you go to the gym together with someone. Maybe you go to a coffee house together with someone. Maybe you go to Chick-fil-A often with someone. Um, When it overlaps, you know, our kids are in a school, a Chinese immersion school, and when we went there, we tried to meet other families and minister with people who were there and do it together. And if we were just doing it by ourselves, it would be heavy, hard, discouraging. But then when you're doing it with other people, when there's other families and you're overlapping and connecting in ministry, it's a beautiful thing. When you're talking with someone and someone else is talking with someone, it's a beautiful thing. The guy that I mentioned that I'd met with for four years, do you think I was the only person meeting with that guy? Absolutely not. There were other people talking with him. The, the young woman that came up after the service and we started meeting with, was it just me? No, it was our family and other people that we connected her to. So when you think about ministry, think about who could you do that with? Maybe that would be another, another small habit. Uh, Michael Green, he has a book called Ministry in the Early Church, and he states... Early Christianity's explosive growth was in reality accomplished by informal missionaries. That is, Christian lay people, not trained preachers and evangelists, 
carried on the mission of the church, not through formal preaching, but informal conversation in homes, wine shops, walks, around market stalls. They did it naturally, enthusiastically. Having found treasure, they meant to share it with others to the best of their ability. Who could you do it with? Who could you go to the coffee shop with? Who could you form a custom or a rhythm with? and do ministry together? How can you do hospitality? Maybe it's with your small group. Maybe it's with your family. Maybe it's with people at your gym or your, your neighborhood or whatever it might be. Uh, there's another author. His name's Sam Chan, and he talks about integrating worlds. He says, Christians need to get non-Christians around them and doing things with them, and then they need to get around non-Christians. You gotta bring these worlds together, not just as individuals, but as a community. There's a beauty in a corporate witness, and it takes a priesthood to do that. Uh, So you could start praying about that. Second concept, suffering is inevitable. Uh, After preaching, people believe the gospel, they become jealous, and they stir up the city. Wicked men and form a mob, and they go to Jason's house and look for Paul and Silas, and they drag Jason and the brothers before the authorities. I thought long and hard about maybe saying that Paul's custom was persecution, Because you know all those synagogues he goes to? Guess what happens every single time? Persecution, suffering, hardship. Uh, It happened in Damascus and Jerusalem, Lystra, Iconium, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. Over and over again, as he would hold out the gospel, people didn't like that. And then he goes to Berea, you know, and they receive it eagerly. But guess what happens there? They stir up, the, the same mob from Thessalonica comes down, and persecutes Paul. Again, it just continues to happen. Uh, and there's something that's not just physical about this. It's profoundly spiritual. In First Thessalonians, Paul says that he wanted to go back to Thessalonica, but Satan hindered them. Satan loves that kind of persecution. He loves to bring up hardship. So don't just think it's a person. It, there, there is spiritual warfare going on as we would look to hold out the gospel. And we shouldn't be surprised, Right? I I feel oftentimes so weak as a Christian in the United States because I talk to brothers and sisters in other parts of the world and what they've had to deal with, what they've had to suffer to hold out the gospel is just so beyond any of the name calling or um, people not answering my phone or not responding to me or walking the other way when they see me coming. That's just small. And, and we as a church, as a people, need to prepare. If we're going to hold out the good news of Jesus Christ, if we're going to have a, a rhythm to that, I think there's going to be a subsequent rhythm of pushback, of hardship, of persecution, of suffering. That's inevitable. And we should not be surprised, right? All through the New Testament, Matthew 5.11 Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Again, John 15, 19, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Paul, 2 Timothy 3, 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Peter 4, 12, I saved it for the last because I love it. Beloved, do not be surprised At the fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. I love that passage because it's like, it's not surprising. You shouldn't be surprised that when you hold this out, people are not going to take kindly to it. And all the more where our culture is going, that's going to be the case. 
And so it, it's not just as simple as going out and connecting the dots. You've got to build dots. And it's not just as simple as just building dots, but you've got to be willing, be ready, be prepared to see hardship, to see persecution come. It's inevitable. And so I want you to be persuaded to hold that out in the face of the inevitable challenges. They came for Paul. And I think Paul is really, really good at what he did. It's going to come for us too. Um, which brings me to the last concept, um, that the gospel message of death and resurrection is what Paul talked about. If, if you look, when he goes to Thessalonica, it says, as was his custom, he reasoned with them, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. When I think about the hardship of holding out the gospel to people right now, I can get overwhelmed. Uh, we need hope, supernatural hope, spiritual hope, and that's what Paul knew. He goes and he talks to the people in Thessalonica about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if you look back in Acts 13, it's the clearest sermon that Paul preaches. And it's all about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It seems like when he went to the synagogues and when he engaged on his missionary journeys, he wanted to hold up that Jesus died for you. And then he rose again from the dead. And we need the resurrection because like in Paul, in uh, Philippians 3, Paul talks about knowing the power of his resurrection. Not just knowing that it happened, not just intellectually knowing it, but the power of his resurrection. Why does he say it like that? Because if you know that Jesus rose, the power of that, it can change any heart. Paul knew that so well, right? Think about Paul's heart. Think about how the power of, of the risen Christ came in and changed his heart. It can overcome any obstacle. Any barrier, any question, Jesus can do that. He rose from the dead. Of course he can overcome someone's questions. If he rose from the dead, that power is inside of you. And that power is greater than any power that is in this world. If Jesus rose from the dead, you have the promise of your name being written in heaven. So whatever persecution, whatever name you get called, you have a greater name that will be eternal, that lasts forever. Paul wanted us to know this. That's why... In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it is 57 verses on the resurrection. And then verse 58, it's one of my favorite verses. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There's a therefore in that verse 58. He's saying because of what Christ has done, because he rose again, he died, he conquered this. Your work is st be steadfast and movable. It will not be in vain. You never know what God is doing through your conversations. You never know as you hold out Jesus what that might do in someone's life. We always think about uh, ministry like this in terms of, of reaping, like seeing someone profess Christ and believe. But before you can ever reap, you've got to sow, right? Who knows how your conversations, your friendships, your interactions would sow seeds of faith into people's lives. And we need that kind of courage. Um, last little story. So my, I, I asked her, if this was okay. Uh, my daughter, uh, she had to give a speech. She's, uh, both of my girls, they do really well in school. And she had to give a speech in front of the class. And she was petrified because she does not like public speaking. Um, and so we talked about it, tried to give her some encouragement that, you know, you can do this. And, and it's because she won a contest in her grade for a speech. So she did it with her, with her class, but then had to do it with the entire grade. 
So we're talking about it. It's the day that before school, she's got to go. She's got to give this, and she's, she's nervous about it. And, you know, I'm praying for her all day long, and then we pick her up at the end of school. I'm like, all right, how did it go? Did it go all right? She's like, I didn't have to do it today. And I was like, oh, well, that was nice. Um, now, just think about it like this. If she knew that morning, hey, you're not going to have to do it today. You, your, your number's not going to come up. Now she's got to do it this week. Um, so you, we'll, we'll talk about that. But if that morning she, was, she didn't want to go to school, she didn't want to get up, all because she thought today is going to be such a terrible day. If she knew that the answer that day was going to be, oh, you don't have to do it. How would she have lived her day? How would she have lived that morning? She knew how the story ended, right? Maybe you've read a story. You're kind of tense in chapter 10. You're like, I've got to know how this ends. And you flip to the end. You just read. You're like, okay. Then you can go back. Whenever we know how the story ends, it makes it so easy to, to walk through it. We know how the story ends. We know that Jesus conquered death. We know that we will live forever with him. When we have that promise and that hope resting on us, would we be able to go out and tell others about that hope in the face of inevitable hardship because of the power of the, of the, the story's end? It's, it's for our good. So there should be great hope in that. Uh, there's a, just in closing, a quote by uh, Tim Keller. Uh, he wrote a book recently. You know, he's got cancer and he's been thinking about the resurrection, about hope. And he wrote a book and, and, and he says, the resurrection does not promise that all the circumstances of life will go smoothly. But it does give us hope that we can be turned into the kind of people who can handle whatever comes. Would that be so true of us as we look to lovingly, courageously hold out the good news of Jesus Christ? As we look to build rhythms into our life of doing that, as we look to reason and persuade and talk with, as we start praying, Lord, would you... Give me that opportunity. Maybe, you know, I thought about this. Maybe that opportunity comes over Thanksgiving because we're around families and that's a hard place. And maybe it's just, how do you have a good conversation? How do you ask questions and draw them out? But would we be able to take the hope, the promise of the resurrection with us as we walk forward to lovingly do that in the face of whatever might come and be a Thessalonican church? So let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that... Uh, the resurrection has happened, that Jesus is on the throne, and would that truth make us the kind of people who can handle whatever comes our way? Would we be the kind of people who are so uh, sure, so convinced of the story's end, that right now, as we are in the middle of the story, we would have great hope, great encouragement, um, that, God, you would open doors for conversation, you would open hearts for, for questions and help us be curious, help us be gentle and reasonable, all these things, Lord. And when hardship comes, when persecution comes, would we not be surprised? Um, and would we be loving and, and, and honest and persevering in the midst of it so that people would see and know that you are worth it. You're worth any price, any cost, any of those things. So help us to take our cross and follow you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church.
For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.